morning, everyone. It's good to see you and to actually see you and not just um, be talking to a camera. Um, uh, Romans um, 15 verse 7 says, um, uh, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Um, and so I give you all a hearty welcome this morning. Um, and I'm really glad to see um, all of you. And uh, I pray this service is a blessing to you. Just looking at who's here. <laughs> cool. It's a bit hard to see with the light in front of me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, it's indeed good to be together uh, because um, we are to <laughs> we are to uh, worship together, um, and the Lord doesn't uh, want us to worship in isolation, um, but He would have us do it together. Um, in Ephesians, uh, when uh, Paul says that uh, we are to comprehend the love of Christ, um, it isn't in isolation, um, but He says. Uh, let me find it. Yeah, he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, um, and not by yourself, but with all the saints. So um, we aren't just here to do church, but we are together, um, and we need each other. And so the few minutes I, I had beforehand um, showed me how much I miss some of you, and uh, that we do need each other. Um, and we don't just do church. Um, so my text today is in Matthew 7. Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series. Um, I said Matthew, sorry, Mark. <laughs> in our sermon series, <laughs> Mark 7, um, as we look at the Lord Jesus um, and who he is. I think it's servant, savior. Um, what's the last one? King, right? Servant, savior, son of God, forgive me. Um, so yeah, so uh, I'll give you a moment to turn there. Um, I wanted to try something today. Uh, when I finish reading, um, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, um, and to give thanks to God for his word, uh, would you say, thanks be to God? So yes, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Amen, amen, amen. Cool, so uh, if you'd so kindly turn there for me, and um, we can begin. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, um, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, 
thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it, it enters his heart? Sorry, it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon, uh, sorry, to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, let the children be first fed, um, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, uh, yes, Lord, yet even the crumbs under the table, sorry, wow, <laughs> yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the, children, found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Yes. <laughs> um, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you expectant. Um, we don't come here to just do church, uh, to attend and go home unchanged, uh, but we come here to sit under your preached word together, to worship together, um, that you might, in your grace, come and visit us, um, whether at home, uh, watching from home, or whether in person. Uh, we don't come just to do church. We don't watch this just to do church. Um, but we wish, Lord, that you would cause our eyes to be firmly fixed upon Jesus in a world of distraction, in a world of sin, um, and even amongst our own sinfulness. Lord, as your word is uh, um, spoken forth, would you water the hearts of your people? Would you nourish your people this day and prepare them for the life that you have called for them? Lord, you are all. Christ is all and in all. And may we live a life that is all of Christ for all of life. Lord, would you build the faith of your people this day? And for all the other churches who are gathering worldwide, would you 
build your church. Um, and may the whole earth be filled with the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so I wanted to begin today with a riddle. Um, some of you might have heard this riddle before. Um, maybe uh, if, you, if you know the answer, uh, feel free to call out. But I'll give you a second to think about it. Um, what gets dirtier the more you wash? So what gets dirtier the more you wash? Any ideas? No? That, that's a good idea too. It's bath water. Yes, which is, Ray was very, was very close. So yes, if you, if you thought bath water, you'd be correct. Um, yet in a similar way in our text, uh, what we'll see is Jesus confronting a kind of religion that stresses being pure and clean, but by doing so, um, becomes a dirty and unclean religion that rejects God and that God rejects. Um, but what we will find is that Jesus, the Son of God, who is bringing the kingdom of God, uh, gives grace to those who are dirty. So as we walk through the text, um, I want us to think about three key things. Uh, the first is that a clean religion can reject God. The second, defilement comes from the human heart. And the third, Jesus in his grace can make us clean. Um, and today's sermon is entitled, Unclean Religion and the Grace of Christ. Um, so in our text today, Jesus arrives in Gennesaret in Israel with his disciples. Um, and we arrive on the scene uh, where the disciples and the scribes have traveled from Jerusalem to take uh, uh, opportunity to find fault in Jesus. Um, and this isn't the first time that they've, they've done this. Uh, the, they, they've had conflict with him before um, in, um, in Mark 2 when they have problem with who he associates with. Um, the fact that his disciples don't fast, um, Sabbath observance, um, and they, they, they casually think he's demon-possessed. Um, and so here they take issue with Jesus um, and his disciples not washing their hands, the disciples particularly not washing their hands. Um, and we must remember that the disciples, sorry, that the Pharisees and the scribes were an influential group um, in Israel with religious authority. They were the teachers and interpreters of God's law. Um, they were the holy men of the land um, who kept the law, and they are the, the in-group. Um, they are well-respected, they're dignified, and so if Jesus and his disciples aren't following their tradition, um, this is a problem. So this complaint about hand-washing is not about hygiene. Um, if it were about hygiene, we would probably stand with the Pharisees and say, yes, disciples, you need to wash your hands. Um, but the emphasis is on being ritually defiled. Um, so after um, having come from the marketplace, uh, uh, you would want to do a special hand washing before you eat the food that you bought in case it was touched by a Gentile who is a non-Jew or a non-observant Jew. And so this idea about cleanness is uh, more related to the idea of a Muslim uh, who doesn't eat meat that is not halal. Uh, or not eating pork. The, the idea is that you, you'd be ingesting something that makes you unclean. Um, and now this law about hand washing um, is commanded in scripture, but only to the priests 
before offering sacrifices. Um, and so the command that everyone else must do this isn't from the scripture, but is from the Pharisees' oral tradition, or what is also called the unwritten Torah, um, which is passed down from generation of Pharisees to the next generation of Pharisees. Um, and it's basically an additional code of religious conduct um, on top of the law that acted as a fence around the law so that they wouldn't break the law. And these laws are very meticulous and examined every part of um, personal and corporate life and were so important as um, a tradition that they came to be seen on the same level or the same authority um, as God's law. So to the charge that the Pharisees are um, bringing to Jesus, uh, Jesus responds with a twofold answer that addresses uh, the deep issues with this kind of tradition. The first part of his answer is in verses 6 to 13, where he severs the Pharisees' tradition from the law of God, showing that they are incompatible. He says from verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment in order to establish your tradition. So he calls them hypocrites, which is literally play actors or pretenders. Um, because their tradition has the appearance of submitting to God's law, but they actually leave God's law and reject it. They don't hold, they, they're not able to hold on to both their tradition and God's law together, um, but they effectively swing from one side of a pendulum to the other side of the pendulum. Um, and we can often think that the problem of legalistic religion um, is just that it's judgmental and it's an unstainable set of standards. But what Jesus shows us is that it is judgmental and unattainable, but it's even worse because it actually opposes and denies the word of God. Their very method of making themselves closer to God is actually the vehicle through which they are driven further from God because it enables one to have the appearance of external devotion, yet internally they are far from God and don't do what he asked and they impose it on others. So yes, bath water gets dirty the more you wash but so does this kind of religion. Jesus then gives them another example from their law, from verse 10. Moses says, honor your father and mother. He says, particularly Moses says, the law says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, as in you are not saying what Moses is saying, you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever you do, I would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many, not just a few, but many things you do. <laughs> God's law commands us to honor our parents. This is the fifth commandment. And the seriousness of this commandment is that of death in Exodus 21, 17. Um, so simply what Jesus is saying here is, if I declare something as Corban, I'm saying that it's an offering to God. Um, but interestingly, I don't actually have to give it to the temple. 
Um, but I stop it from being used for any other reason other than it being a holy thing that I've declared as holy and declared as dedicated to God. But this doesn't actually stop me from using it. It just stops other people from using it, even my parents. So say I had a property in the countryside um, and I've declared it Corbin, it's holy to God. And I had elderly parents who uh, were unfortunately losing their home. Uh, they might ask me to move into this property, um, but I would say no, because I've offered it to God. It's Corbin, so you can't use it. However, if I had a heart and changed my mind um, and thought I need to help my parents, um, I would go to the religious leaders and say, can my parents use the property even though I've declared it Corbin? And they would tell me, no, that would be unholy use of what you have declared Corbin and you would be dishonoring your vow to God by letting your homeless parents use it. So I'm not sure what your parents are going to do, but that's Corbin, so you can't, they, they can't use it. Because of this tradition, instead of me honoring my parents, I have dishonored them in the name of giving God an offering. By trying to keep the law, I have broken the law. And in this case, I've broken a law that's worth the death penalty. How can an offering to God make me worthy of the death penalty? It's because I've circumvented following God's law with a loophole that gets me out of actually having to follow God's law. And Jesus says, by this, you've made the word of God void. You've replaced it with your tradition. So the tradition that aimed to put a fence around the law actually ends up destroying the law. Their lips say, I honor God, but their hearts say, I hate God. There is a real concern for outward conformity to the law, yet there is no heart loyalty to the lawgiver. So much so that God stands before them incarnate. And it's not just that they don't recognize him, but they seek him out to criticize him and to reject him. And later on, they go on to kill him. These are the people who say they, they love God and commit to his law. Seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, and in their obedience, they do not obey. Now, we often think that this can be a problem just for Pharisees and that we're immune to this, um, but we don't have antibodies um, against this um, because the Bible is an inspired book, um, uh, because the Bible is not an inspired book uh, suited to the spiritual needs of your neighbor. Um, it's, it's speaking to you. What Jesus is saying here is that you do not need to be lawless in order to reject God. Yes, you can reject him by being sexually immoral and drunk and disobedient. But you can equally reject him by being sexually abstinent and sober and careful and conscientious about the law. Dane Ortland says, you can stiff arm God in two ways. One, by breaking all the rules. And by two, keeping all the rules. The only difference is 
In way number two, you don't know that you're rejecting God. So this is not unique to the Pharisees, but this is something that we all struggle with. What external deed do you cling to that makes you think you are acceptable before God, but is really a subtle way of keeping God at arm's length? Some of you look to your devotional routine as your salvation or as your righteousness, or your theological orthodoxy, or how many books you've read, or how many sermons you listen to in a week, and think that secures your righteousness and makes you clean just because you've done them. Others of you log into church to watch church and satisfy an external weekly religious function or a religious weekly routine and go about your week not having had any other thought about God, yet thinking you're near enough to him because you sat through online service. Some of you think by virtue of your family or your Christian cultural heritage or your Christian marriage that you have nearness to God. Others of you have Christian jobs or used to do Christian, public Christian ministry and say that that is how you're close to God. Others of you think your cleanness is in how much you serve in church or how much you do for God, um, how many times you serve at barley loaves, how many prayer meetings or Bible studies you attend. And when you're done and dusted, you think, God is pleased with me. I am clean. There are even those of you who, have, who think you have understood grace better than everyone else and rely on the fact that you're spiritually laid back and have liberty in Christ and think that makes you holier than others because supposedly you're more real and authentic because you're more liberal and laid back. And you think you're clean because of that. But that really is just a cover-up to help you circumvent actually being devoted to God. These are methods that give a tangible sense of satisfaction to convince the mind of its own holiness and cleanness before God. Yet they actually suppress true openness to God. Some of us are trees that staple fruit on our branches instead of bearing fruit of faith. But before God, performing external outward signs of righteousness is not our biggest problem because they cannot clean our dirt. Jesus now, from verse 14 onwards, returns to the issue and says to the Pharisees and to us, if you're going to be concerned about something, your first concern is not about eating with unwashed hands or external religion. It's about your heart. And he alludes to this four different times. Verse 15, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these things come from within a person and they defile a person. Now to the first readers, uh, this is revolutionary because even the disciples don't understand what is being said. And that's because it reverses the logic of religion. We see the external world as the problem that affects us within. But the center of the problem is already within. Defilement comes from the inside out and not the other way around. And so it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter if your food is halal um, because it just passes through you and doesn't affect your heart. What matters is your heart. Um, And this would have had serious ramifications for the early church as Jews and Gentiles had fellowship. The, The heart here is not referring to the organ, but to the real you, your inner self, your will, desires, emotions, and passions. It is the center of human personality that determines what you do or what you don't do and how you think and who you are. And Jesus says, that is the problem. Defilement and uncleanness, the problem of sin, is not a transferable substance that's transmitted from the outside into you. The problem is you. You can't say amen, you've got to say ouch. And I might argue that this doesn't just apply to that of food and ceremonial cleansing. You know, we're we're, we're so uh, used to thinking that the problem is just out there. That society out there is the problem. Um, This organization or the criminals or the politicians, it's not me, it's him or it's her or it's them. They are the problem. And there is truth to this uh, because they are a problem because they have a human heart also. But we mustn't be fooled by a culture that says everyone else is toxic except you. We fear corruption is out there in the world, yet corruption dwells within us. James 1:13 to 14 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Therefore, the law doesn't need offense, but the heart needs a cage. Every dimension of human personality is deeply affected by sin because it's at the very root of the human. Sin that comes out of the heart darkens human understanding and it twists our motives. 
It distorts our emotions. It corrupts our speech and ruins our ability to relate to and love others. Have you felt this before? Have you felt the pain and frustration of realizing what your heart is capable of? Have you seen in live action the defilement emerge from within you in real time in those moments when you've said or done something that leaves you thinking, wow, did I, did I really just do that? Are there things that disappoint you inside of you, things that you wish you could change and have tried to change, but you failed and it devastates your conscience and reduces you to grief and crushes you to the point of hopelessness? I know I have. Parents, when you're in a challenging situation with your children and you're frustrated, do you notice the harsh and severe way you can speak to or treat your children? <laughs> Husbands, do you recognize the, the pride you hold on to when you want to win the argument and you don't care about your wife's feelings? Or do you recognize the adultery that's in your heart when you look at another woman for a couple of seconds too long? Wives, do you notice the evil thoughts that arise against your husband within you when he doesn't act how you want him to and you slander him to your friends or give him the, the silent treatment and slander him to yourself? Young men and women, do you recognize the sexual immorality in you through inappropriate conversations or relationships or fornication or the use of pornography? This all stems from the condition of our heart. And what we do or what we think we bring to the table does not rid us of this condition. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. If you are troubled by your heart, Jesus does not want you to hand him a surface level superficial religiosity. He doesn't want your outward things. He wants honest and dependent faith. So moving on. The Pharisees would believe themselves to be defiled by touching something that a Gentile touched at the marketplace. Uh, yet Jesus, in our next section, uh, goes into unclean Gentile territory and is in contact with a Syrophoenician woman, uh, a Greek-speaking woman, uh, who is um, effectively a Gentile of Gentiles, um, and who even in, in, in Matthew's account of uh, this story uh, is referred to as a Canaanite woman. Um, you don't really get much more Gentile than this woman. To be in contact with her was not normal. It was not a normal Jewish thing to do. Uh, but Jesus did not come to reinforce or support the tradition of men or the current state of affairs, but he came to bring his kingdom 
in power. Notice in uh, verse 25 how the woman approaches Jesus. The Pharisees approach Jesus with a lifted chin and a puffed up chest. Uh, But this woman comes before him, falling down at his feet, showing immense reverence and grief. And she desperately asks that her daughter be healed of demon possession. Jesus' response seems surprising. Um, In the account in Matthew, when she pleads for help at first, he initially doesn't even answer her. Um, And the disciples actually beg him, um, she's begging, the disciples start begging him to send her away. (laughs) Um, And when he does respond, he says in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet, Jesus, um, yet the woman keeps pleading to Jesus, and Jesus further responds in both accounts, in both Matthew's account and Mark's account, that it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, for us, this might seem confusing, um, if not offensive, uh, but we're shown two things here. We're shown uh, the scope of Jesus' mission and the scope of of his grace. We can often think of Jesus as a separate entity from the Old Testament. Um, There are many Christian traditions who are uh, leaning away from teaching the Old Testament as a whole, um, which is incredibly wrong because Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. He is the climax of the story of the Old Testament. God formed the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations around them so they could know God. But they fail in this mission time and time again. And instead of uh, being a light to the nations, uh, they are darkened and um, they become like the nations. So Jesus, in his mission, or the scope of his mission, focuses particularly on gathering and restoring this Israel that keeps on failing which is why he calls 12 disciples corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. He institutes a new Passover. Um, He is the greater Moses, the greater David, and the greater Elijah. And he wants to restore them so that they can go out to all nations and fulfill their mission of being a light, which is why Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you are the light of the world, and let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He is restoring Israel to their original calling. And so he has his his lens fixed on Israel, but the scope of his mission includes the Gentiles. He has a universal scope. Even though here he mentions the lost sheep of Israel, he mentions in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, i.e. not Israel. I must Bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. But Israel, the children, must be fed first. Jesus' use of the word uh, dogs is not the offensive word that Jews ordinarily um, used for Gentiles. 
which was derogatory, um, and would say that they are unclean. Jesus doesn't use that word. Um, he uses a different word. But his use of analogy here points more to a dog that's in the home um, with the family, not outside the family, um, yet does not have first priority. Yet through this analogy, Jesus subtly invites this woman in to apprehend his mercy. She feels no insult. Um, when, when, you, when people talk about this text, um, people unnecessarily feel offended on the woman's behalf and somehow make this an issue of racism or misogyny um, or what have you. But Jesus, um, but she doesn't reject what Jesus says or contradict it. Um, but in humble, persistent, and dependent faith, she turns the analogy to her, to her advantage and takes it a step further and says, Yes, Lord, feed the children, but let me have the crumbs of what the children receive, which is evidently what's happening because the children, the Jews, the religious leaders in Israel are rejecting the food. Jesus recognizes that she ha- sorry, she recognizes that she has no grounds to expect help, but she throws herself on the mercy of Jesus, and in doing so, he responds in Matthew's account with, O oh great, O oh woman, great is your faith, in Matthew 15, 28. And in our text in Mark 7, Jesus responds that because of what she has said, he will do what she's asked. And he is delighted to remove that which is unclean, the unclean spirit from this woman's daughter. This woman, unlike the Pharisees, is alienated from Israel and is a stranger to the commonwealth or the covenants of promise, sorry, having no hope and without God in the world. Yet before her stands Jesus the Christ, the anointed king who is ushering in the kingdom of God. This Jesus so embodies the kingdom that his very presence is the kingdom of God in their midst. And he has come to demonstrate and enforce God's rule and authority over creation, over sickness and evil demonic powers, and over restrictive, empty religion and social, cultural boundaries and self-righteousness and ultimately sin and death and Satan. And she lays hold of him for healing, not through what she can bring to the table, not her outward um, expressions of piety, but through honest, genuine, humble, dependent, uninhibited faith, the kind of faith that refuses to rely on itself. The more desperate she became and the more reliant upon Jesus she became, closer and closer did he move in toward her and grant her her request. The Lord truly resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Family, Jesus Christ does not reject those who are dirty but he rejects those who by their superficial cleanliness refuse to be cleaned by him because truly they have rejected him. 
Jesus says in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. If you can please God by the good things you do or your own cleanness or you're willing to stake your eternity on yourself and your corrupt heart, then you don't need Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, not the clean, but sinners, just like this woman. Brothers and sisters, you will be pleased to know that the Lord Jesus does not have a corrupt heart like ours, but his heart is perfect and unstained and is overflowing with a gracious disposition and tender affection toward sinners like you and sinners like me. Are you a sinner this morning? Jesus says, come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you a sinner this morning? The heart of Christ towards sinners is that he does not despise us because of our sin, but rather our very failings move him to love us more deeply so long as we put down our faulty righteousness and throw ourselves upon his mercy. This is the only way into the kingdom of God. It is not through building a bridge um, to God by your works, but casting yourself off the edge into and upon the mercy of Christ who cannot help but catch you because he is so drawn to wretched sinners like you. And the only requirement of this, or of you, to come to him is that you be a sinner. It's not that you're righteous. Don't clean yourself up beforehand. It is of no use. You will only make yourself dirtier. Come to Jesus and he will wash you and make you whiter than snow. And what does he offer you? He does not offer strict outward religious adherence, but he offers entrance into the kingdom by way of his heart. He does not offer strict dietary rules, but Christ offers himself truly to restore us to God and draw us into his kingdom under his loving and saving rule. If you come bringing your good works and your devotional routine and your lofty theology and your sexual purity and your own righteousness, thinking that this is God wants, you're wrong. Lay them down and throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ and he will make you clean and he will give you a new heart and change your life from the inside out and not the outside in. To what else can you turn? You will only find your heart unchanged and producing more evil in you, which will only grow, which will only make you grow more and more frustrated and crushed and more burdened and devastated by. Respond to Jesus, not with your works, but with genuine, humble, dependent, 
vulnerable, desperate faith because you cannot save yourself. It is not only impossible, but you're making matters worse by trying to save yourself. The Christian life is not just leaving behind all your bad stuff, all your sins. It's leaving your bad stuff and your sins and your good works. It is not you working your way up to ascend to the kingdom of God, but through faith in Jesus, the kingdom of God has descended and taken root in you. And this is a hostile takeover, working in you day by day and hour by hour to bring you to full and complete understanding um, and, sorry, it is a hostile takeover working in you day by day and hour by hour to bring you fully and completely under the loving rule of the Lord Jesus by faith, not by your own efforts, but by faith in Jesus. That is your starting point. That is what keeps you, and that is your finish line. Humble, dependent, genuine, vulnerable faith in Jesus. Confessing your sin and confessing your good works that you try to use outside of Jesus to keep you in Jesus. And we confess these sins because he is faithful and just not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first words of our Lord in Mark are this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And to end, I pose to you another riddle and I will quickly give you the answer. Who wishes to clean you the dirtier you get? Our resurrected Lord Jesus. Where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, what can we say but marvel at your grace? We are undeserved sinners. Yet for some reason, you are so deeply uh, driven and you so desire to clean us and clean our dirt that you are drawn to us, not in our righteousness, as if we can create any righteousness of ourselves. But in our sin, you come toward us. We are at the bottom of the ocean in sin, drenched in our own corruption. Yet Jesus, you don't shun us. But you dive into our ocean. You dive into our, our mess and draw near to us and give us grace. How wonderful are you 
Jesus. No other belief system is so scandalous and so gracious. You don't offer us another religion. You offer us the alternative to religion. And that's the grace of Christ. Lord Jesus, would you help us to lay hold of your grace? And in order to do that, help us to put down the things that we cling to that make us think we can earn your grace. Help us to put those things down, to empty our hands and realize that we are empty, but you call us to lay hold of you and you call us um, and you fill us, Lord. You fill our emptiness and you clean our dirt. For both believers and unbelievers, help us to look to Jesus, the gracious one, who does not shun us. I pray you would encourage those who are in sin to not think their sin has driven you past your grace because our sin cannot outrun the grace of Christ. But help us, Lord, to cast ourselves, to fall upon your mercy, to run toward your mercy as you Run toward us. Encourage us to do this, Lord. This goes beyond our ability to comprehend. Would you, Lord, together with all the saints, help us grasp what is the height and depth and length and width and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Not our righteousness, but with your grace, heavenly Lord, our Father in heaven, we ask that you would do this for us. Help us, Lord, to lean on you, to cast ourselves upon you and nothing else. In the name of your gracious Son, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.